This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Hornswording. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we've made some exciting new changes to our mead range, and in particular, our Yorkshire mead. So what we've done is we've completely rebranded, relabeled, and we've also added a couple of new flavours. Now, before I tell you about the new flavours, I want to tell you a little bit about the mead production, because this stuff is really something special. It's made at a micro meadery just on the outskirts of York, and it's run by a fellow called Pete Allenson, and this guy does everything himself. He keeps the bees, he sustainably harvests the honey from his own bees, he then ferments the honey to make the mead, he bottles the mead, he labels the mead, he sends it out to us, I mean this guy does everything and, and mead is what he does and that's part of why I think this stuff is so amazing because it has such a short journey from production to bottling to end user um, and I think it really is a special product. So we have our three traditional ones that you might have seen on the website before which are mead of Serenos, our mead of Brigid and our mead of Morrigan. The Morrigan is an elderberry, the Serenos is a heather honey and the mead of Brigid is a traditional. Now on top of that, what we've done is we've added a spice mead, which is Surtur's mead. We have Loki's Curse, which is a pineapple and coconut mead. And then we also have Tia's Sacrifice, which is a whiskey and cherry mead. And I mean, that stuff is absolutely beautiful. All these meads are available in 75 cl bottles and a 25 cl bottle, so you can sort of pick your size. On the website, we also pair it in a gift set where you get a 25 cl bottle and a small drinking horn. Perfect for gifting or a little treat for yourself even. Even if you don't like mead, just it's worth going and looking at this stuff just for the artwork and for the bottles. Saxon Storyteller has done the artwork and I mean, he's absolutely nailed it with these. The, the labels look beautiful and I'm really proud of it. I'm sure you can tell. So just pop over to the website, hornsofodin.com. You get 10% off for listening to the show with the discount code HORNS10. So you should pop that in at checkout so you're going to get 10% off your order, Horns 10, and honestly, just try this stuff out. It really is, I think, the best mead available. Right, let's jump into the show. Hello and welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, corner of the company Horns of Odin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Now, Matthias, before you introduce our guest, uh, I just want to give a shout out to a very good friend of mine, um, Terry Chittuk, who is also probably best known as Thorson's Workshop. He makes some really cool wood woodwork, um, and he's just a salt-of-the-earth guy, and he had some brilliant news this morning that he he gets his, he's on the list, or he's got, got a transplant for, for his kidney. Um, now he's had one already that his body rejected. So this is the second one, and I know he's just been through a tough, a tough time. And he's a, a real inspiration for positivity because he's been through some shit and never kind of given up. And he's never sad, never angry. He's one of those really good people. I don't know how he does it. So I just want to show him a little bit of love before the uh, before the podcast because he really, if anybody deserves it, he definitely does. I totally agree. Congratulations, Terry. I, I hope everything goes really well with this one. Yeah, don't ruin um, this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so uh, this time we are joined by Dr. Martin Findel, who is an assistant professor in historical linguistics at Nottingham University. Uh, and also uh, an author on, on subjects about runes. So welcome to the show. Hi. <laughs> yeah, thank you for thank you for joining us. Um, like I said be- before the show to you, you were definitely one of the guests that I I always wanted to 
to have on. Um, I picked your book up a long time ago. It was the first book in this kind of topic that I read and it, it definitely had me hooked. It's one of the reasons, you know, we sell it on Oswald and I keep pushing it to anybody and every, it just, it's, it's one of those books I think is such a good starting place for this because it's, it's such a complex subject. Um, and, you know, you can just go onto Facebook and to any of these groups and people just spell a lot of misinformation about runes. So I like to point them in your direction to be like, look, this is a good place to start. And there's some, uh, you can get a good understanding. So thank you. Thank you for writing the book, I think, let's start with. Thank you for reading it and promoting it. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it's it's useful to have those. Um, uh, I think, you know, the big advantage of the book is, is that it's cheap. Um Whereas a lot of kind of academic work on on this topic is, you know, it's kind of big, rather expensive books, and that's a bit a bit more off-putting to people. The British Museum asked me to do it as a um, they were kind of updating a lot of their own uh, a lot of their books. They had a whole series on different writing systems, and the volume in that series um, on runes had been written by uh, Professor Ray Page, who was one of the giants of of runology. He was my sort of doctoral grandfather, uh, so to speak. He was my my phd supervisor did his doctorate with page and it was great but it was but it was written in, in about 1980 so it was a bit out of date and they just wanted a, a revised version and of course it's got lots of nice pictures of of nice things that are in the british museum that you can go and look at um uh so that's that's why they asked me to do it but it's um it's 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 nice that it's been well received you know I mean, it's really fun as an academic writing kind of obscure technical stuff on on the things that you're on the kind of nerdy niche things that you're very very interested in mm-hmm. but it's not very not very accessible to, to to a general audience so it's nice to do something that's kind of more for everybody yeah if if i understood it then like say so you did a good job <laughs> that's 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 i think that's the the, the benchmark for uh, this kind of thing if, it, if it's good for me then I, um, I think it's good for most people <laughs> So um, I think, you know, we're going to take a, a bit of a deep dive into into runes. And I, I think we should start at the at the beginning, which I guess isn't necessarily going to be Viking based. But where what would be the earliest kind of finding of runes? Or where do we know like do we know where they come from or where they originated? We don't is the short answer to that. So the earliest inscriptions that we know about were written in the second half of the second century AD. And those are finds from uh, mainly from the, the very earliest inscriptions are mostly from bog deposits in Denmark and northern Germany. There is one inscription that's that's a bit older than that, which is um, you can read it left to right. And it's in. Hang on, let me get this the right round. Yeah. If you read it, if you read it left to right, it says Edin in, in Roman letters, which would be a woman's name. Uh, and if you read it um, right to left and it says Hiwi in runes which is also a perfectly a perfectly plausible name and, and linguistically there's nothing wrong with either of those um so if it's runic it's but it, it's it's the oldest known runic inscription that's from a, a place called meldorf in in northern germany again but we yeah we don't know we don't know who invented this writing system and we don't know when and we don't know really where and we don't know why it's obviously you know runes are obviously related to other european alphabets you know a lot of them um, as you'll as you'll know, a lot of the letter shapes are similar to the equivalent letters in the Roman or Greek alphabets, um, and they also sim- they also have similarities with various other kind of um, less well known European alphabets like the Etruscan alphabet. 
if they were created by people in what's now kind of northern Germany or Denmark or that that part of the world, these are people living on these are people kind of on the fringes of the Roman world. They're people who would certainly have been in contact with the Roman world. They're probably already um, kind of hiring people out as soldiers in the Roman army. They're trading with the Romans. So the you know, Roman culture and at least the idea of writing would have been very familiar to them by by sort of the mm -hmm. first century AD. If they you know, if they imported the Roman writing system, it still begs the question: there are probably some people in these societies who know who speak Latin and who can read and write Latin at least a bit. Why did they invent a whole new alphabet? Why not just use the Roman alphabet? So, is it um, fair to say that the Roman or the Greek ones came first, and the runic one? came after probably yeah it would be extraordinary if that wasn't the case because i'm mean, the oldest inscriptions using the greek alphabet are from what about the 8th century bc something like that yeah. um the oldest inscriptions using the roman alphabet are not much younger than that the sort of 7th seventh, seventh or 8th century bc that's a good thousand years before before our earliest runic inscriptions or going on for a thousand years before. So what what, what is the most plausible explanation for why these these people up there on the fringes of the Northern Empire um, um, they they would uh, they would do that like they would come up with their own little uh, writing system instead of just adopting to the Roman alphabet. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not sure there is a good explanation for this. It's it's kind of weird. I mean, it may be to do with, I mean. There are obviously some things like, you know, the language has sounds in it that there aren't letters for in the Roman alphabet. So, you know, but, but you could you perfectly well adapt the Roman alphabet for, for that if you wanted to. And all modern languages that use the Roman alphabet are, you know, have all sorts of adaptations. You know, they add extra letters, they use diacritics, they use you know, marks like accents and things, or they use kind of combinations of letters, just like we do for you know, SH and TH in modern English. So what? Yeah, um, I mean, I think it, it may be something to do with the idea of uh, of kind of prestige. Um, if you know, if you're if you're kind of an aspiring big, if you're an, kind of an aspiring bigwig in one of these societies living near the Romans, you know, you want to display your wealth, your power, your 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 authority. So you want to have fancy stuff. You want to have nice things. So you know. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you see a lot in, in kind of late antique and early medieval societies in this in northwestern Europe, you know, very large, ostentatious jewellery with lot, you know, lots of gold, lots of, um, you know, gems, enamel, uh, things like that. And, and some of that jewellery is is based on Roman models. Um, mm. I don't know if you've I don't know if you've talked in, on the podcast before about Bracteates. We have mentioned we have, them on yeah. occasion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Bracteates are kind of, you know, the, the earliest bracteates are based on kind of Roman medallions or Roman coins. And then and then the kind of the art style develops. And some of those, of course, have writing on them. So it may be, um, you know, it may have started out as, you know, this is you know, we want to show that we are powerful. Uh, you know, I, 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 a member of some kind of elite in in one of these societies, want to show that I'm powerful. Um, like the Romans, the Romans have writing on their stuff, so I want writing on my stuff. But but it's going to be our writing, so it, it may be something. It may be something like that. Okay. The idea of wanting to display power, a kind of emulating the Romans without just kind of directly but with a distinctive local identity, so to speak, or it, it, possibly, yeah. Yeah, I think that would make sense. People want their own thing. It's no different today. 
know, you have people with a lot of money, they want their own distinct things. They want it to be slightly different, unique to them. It's there's still people, even though we're talking 2000 years ago, it, they're still humans. Yeah. Operating with that basic Maslow pyramid kind of <laughs> scenario. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. So if we, if we move through to, I guess the elder Fudak is one that gets mentioned a lot when it comes to kind of like Viking age Vikings, that that whole thing. Um, now I know a lot of people say that it, that it's pre-Viking Age, but it also gets mixed up a lot in with this. I think a lot of people tend to use it for their own individual translations. I guess because it's it's easier because I guess you almost get that letter letter to letter um, matching. I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think you know older ones are much easier for modern people to use because you know it's got twenty-four letters. It matches fairly closely to the Roman alphabet, you can more or less, you know, it's not very difficult to transliterate something from modern English into older runes. Whereas with with younger runes, with Viking Age runes, you've got this kind of reduction down to 16 letters, which again is another interesting thing. Nobody really knows why that happened. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's easier to, I mean, it's easier to learn the set of, of characters and it's easier to write, but it's harder to read um, because letters are doing Kind of double duty, you know, lots of them have, represent several different sounds. So, um, I mean, the older runes are the latest inscriptions in older runes, by and large, go down to about 700 AD. And after that, there's there's a sort of transition where where they start to experiment in Scandinavia with with some additional runes. Um, and there's a, there's a set of transitional inscriptions before they before you get this kind of reduction down to 16 letters. It comes gradually, right? So we, we yeah. and it's the seven hundreds as a as a as a century to me, um, who is you know on on the other side of the Viking Age compared to what to what you work with, right? Uh, it, the seven the seven hundreds is 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 the most interesting century, if you ask me, because this is all also way linguistically in Scandinavia we have such big, it's it's all weird. Everything is getting weird at that point. <laughs> And then it's sort of like, you know, it's as if it's an explosion that then contracts again. And then in the Viking Age, it's sort of everything is it's streamlined after that, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the you know, the obvious exception is is the Rook Stone, which was mm -hmm. made in about made in about nine hundred. But it, but part of the inscription is in older runes, and that, as far as I know, is unique for that period. Mm -hmm. But it means there was somebody alive at that time who still knew how who still knew this older type of writing. Wouldn't that then suggest that we should be able to, if if it were, or that there is a sort of like a chance that we could find more inscriptions with older runes in the Scandinavian area? Yeah, I mean, there are kind of there is a sort of trickle of new finds crop up every now and again. Mm -hmm. I mean, the uh, I mean the Hergandvik the Hergandvik stone was found in about was it twenty fourteen something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that sounds about that's, right. That's 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 been dated to the third century, so really quite early. Yeah. Um. So I mean, th these things do crop up. Um. Okay. So are the older runes the earliest kind of full set that we know of, or is there one before that? Um. No. It's the so the older runes are the earliest kind of um form of runic writing that we know i mean there's there's variation within that form you know you get letters with slightly different shapes 
mm -hmm. um, where we've got full rune rows in some early inscriptions from the fourth or fifth century. There are slight variations in the order, um, but we don't have a kind of we don't have really any evidence of a of a sort of a transitional type of mm. writing somewhere between, say, Roman alphabet or okay or any of the others and mm. and older runes. Okay. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, is the Vadstena inscription is sort of the, uh, the 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 main one that is that that we use nowadays as as like this is what the elder Futhark looked like. Yeah. So the, well, there's 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 two bracteates, um, the Vadstena and Mortala bracteates, which have the same inscription on them. I can't remember. I think they're from the same die. There's also there's also the runestone at, at um, I'm going to get I'm going to mess the pronunciation up uh, Shuvo in Sweden, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, about the same I think it's about 400 AD something like that. Yeah, mm. and that one has some slightly different letter shapes on it, which is that I like that one best, but not for any okay. reason. <laughs> um, so do the um, do the runes exist? Or the the older runes is it mainly in Europe? Or like in so sort of like Germanic areas, or is it Scandinavia and or does it move up and you kind of see it go? So the early inscriptions are they're they're found in places the, the concentration is in sort of you know southern southern Norway and Sweden, Denmark, northern Germany, that that area okay. which has you know, has led to the hypothesis that maybe that maybe that's where it originated mm -hmm. um but you get early inscriptions um scattered quite widely you get you know there are some early inscriptions in britain well the earliest inscriptions in britain are from the fifth century um there are some you know fur further along on the continent um there are also some very early inscriptions in eastern europe um in uh uh in ukraine in uh i think romania um serbia right serbia yeah yeah um so we get far, pretty far down in the balkans yeah and um uh, and and the gothic alphabet um has has a couple of letters that that are quite likely based on runes so the, the gothic alphabet was was in, created in probably in the fourth century um mm -hmm. by bishop wolfler for his translation of the bible so you know there are at least some people in you know in southeastern Europe and 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 in and further field in Eastern Europe in the in, in the sort of you know third fourth fifth centuries who know this form of writing. Mm -hmm. um, although most of these things are on on portable objects, so the places they turn up aren't necessarily close to the places they were made. Right. Yes. But there there is also a very recent find of Slavic written in runes that's really fascinating because as far as I know very little about Slavic linguistics in general but as far as I understand our earliest uh, sort of Slavic language is is the church Slavic right that is being written in in, yeah. in church literature so 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 we don't have a lot of epigraphic inscriptions with Slavic language in general uh, not as far as I know no so, so this would be an example of that. That's that's quite yeah. fascinating. Yeah, and again, I don't know what's in the inscriptions. It may just be names. Is is that common? Does it tend to just be people's names? Uh, yeah, a lot of it is. A lot of it is is names. Yeah, um, and you know, again, we don't know whose names they are. You know, is this the name of the person, a person who owned the object? Is it the person who made it? Um, I mean, sometimes, sometimes it's very clear. You know, that we have some that say, you know. 
so and so made this um mm. or um you know we have them there are there are it's kind of a fairly common formula in older inscriptions that will say you know name wrote the runes it is just saying i wrote this whatever that meant to the person who wrote it or why they <laughs> thought it was significant i wrote this and it doesn't say anything else um yeah i mean that's quite a statement it's almost it's almost like a branding like trying to say this is this is mine and it you can compare it to i guess to other if you're trading the items it kind of stands out against somebody else's um yeah uh i mean that certainly happens in um again you you probably already know this, but you know like some viking age sword makers are using their names as brands and there's there's a very famous one as uh, a very famous sword maker based in york and i've forgotten his name but you know his his swords are so common that people start doing knockoffs that's him yeah yeah that's so that's so uh, interesting to see like you you basically see uh things that are very similar to you know um processes today where you get knockoff nikes that are being made somewhere yeah. else in the world <laughs> it's it's so fascinating how how even those hundreds of years difference some basic principles and just don't change people don't change we're all still humans we still do the same stuff um so would would runes have been used is it likely they were used every day would i'm just it's it's something that i i know so little about even though i try read about um is it so yeah is it how common would it be or do we have any idea how common it would be that that people would know would they write quite often um it's it's very difficult to know part of the mm. problem is is the material that gets preserved um you know if people are you know if people are writing if people are carving with runes every day they're going to be writing on perishable materials like wood mm. and bone um which often don't survive um and so this but the stuff that does survive is the stuff that's really durable that can sit you know, like gold which means like gold and silver so it's it tends to be high value objects tend to be the ones tend to be the ones that survive or tend to be the ones that survive in good enough condition that you can see the inscriptions on them um and i think you know a hundred years ago or so it was fairly common for scholars to assume that that meant that writing was something that was the preserve of of kind of the ruling class mm -hmm. um and the people who had these high value objects but um yeah, that doesn't that doesn't really follow. We don't know what's not there, um, and I mean, in, in runology, there's a very common. I, I can't remember whether I mentioned this in the book. But there's a very common sort of cal calculation or kind of pseudo calculation that you know, older runes are in, are in use for a period of at least about five hundred years. If there are only ten people alive at any time who know how to write with runes, and each of them only writes one thing a year. You should have about five thousand objects with mm -hmm. with runic inscriptions on, of which we know about four hundred. Um, so you know, even if this is something very very arcane and rarefied, what we have must be only a very small proportion of what what people were actually producing. I think it's yeah. a good a good way uh, to to think about this is to compare also with uh, what we see from the medieval material and, right. and the Viking Age, right? Because we have we had all those thousands of uh, 
you know, little inscriptions that I'm basically mostly just messages or, uh, you know, lists that somebody needs to remember and get milk and stuff like that from Bergen from late 1100s and into the late 1300s, early 1400s, right? In the same time, at the same time, you have the Icelanders who are writing down Nordic mythology and talking about how Odin is like a runic master who hung on a tree and all that funky stuff, right? So like, on the one hand, you have something that sounds very occult, uh, you know, and at the same time, you have something that is very, very just an everyday kind of thing. You know, people just writing these little messages to each other with runes. And so that should also tell us that, you know, there's a possibility for things to exist in two different spaces at the same yeah. time, so to speak, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the way I like to think about it is it's writing. and You can do with it all the things you can do with any other kind of writing. You know, you can make shopping lists. You can just scratch your name on something to show that you own it. You can, you know, you can tag a wall. You can make rude jokes. You can mm -hmm. you can write magic spells. You can say Christian prayers You can, you know, do or, or heathen prayers. You know, you can do all the things that you can do with any other kind of writing. Um, I mean, the, the Bergen material is 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 brilliant. And it's a fantastic um corpus of material and of course it's being produced in a you know in a in a, in the high in the high middle ages in a mercantile town we don't know whether kind of the level of literacy that we see at bergen would translate to other times and places um mm -hmm. yeah maybe it would and maybe maybe not um mm -hmm. i mean yeah that's a, that's a good uh, good question right because what we also see in the same period are a couple of manuscripts being written in runes, right? We have the Codex Monicus from Denmark, yeah. and we also have a fragment. What is it? A fragment of uh, of some saint's life, or or something like that. I, can't uh, I, I don't know that one actually. Um, it's, it's a Swedish fragment, as far as I remember. Right. So so and and then we have later reports. I think it's Olaus Magnus who writes that there used to be a lot of booms, books written in runes and so on. So we don't know if that was true, but yeah, uh, that's sort of the report that comes later on that they were burnt um, during the uh, switch to Protestantism in, in Sweden in particular. But um, but it's it's. It's interesting to consider that you know runes might have been sort of more popular script, um, whereas Latin letters would be perhaps reserved for you know church and official um, um, business, so to speak, more um, in in the medieval period. Yeah, um, but, yeah, but but even then, there's there's kind of overlap between the two. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, as, as you know, some you know, quite a lot of the inscriptions in Bergen were written. There's there's, there's a whole bunch that are in Latin. Yeah. Um, some of them were probably written by priests. Some of them are prayers. Uh, and also uh, the late medieval stave churches in Norway have lots mm -hmm. of graffiti in in runes. Again, some of it in Latin, some of it almost certainly written by priests. Um, and in some of those churches, there are there are inscriptions that are probably sub, probably part of the process of um, uh, of kind of dedicating the church. Mm, yeah, that's so true. Even, you know, even within kind of liturgical practice, runes are are part of the sort of writing resources that are available yeah. and then of course you know i, I mean you know, um, same thing in england mm -hmm. most of the runic inscriptions we have surviving in england were written by members of religious communities um mm -hmm. often you know often sort of alongside or in combination with uh, roman letter inscriptions so it's um and there is it's, it's perhaps something to do with just kind of display and contrast um mm -hmm. or with the idea of you know um Here's, here's some writing that's a bit different, different, 
are you clever enough and learned enough to understand this sort of writing? Right. I think we actually see that same example in uh, in in one of the Serbian inscriptions, where you have a uh, a, a runic inscription and then either Greek or Latin. I can't remember. Um, well, uh, the, there's a Dutch... the, col the column. At, uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the um, yeah. It's got. It's got. It's. I think it's got a Roman alphabet on it as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a theory. I I, I don't remember the uh, uh, the scholar's name. Um, she's Dutch though, uh, who has presented a theory about this. I think uh, where she suggests that it has something to do with consecrating the church. Yeah, um, yeah that seems plausible to me. Um, yeah. Again, we know from the state churches, you know, writing alphabets is certainly part of the part of the process of, or, or can be part of the process of dedicating the church. Yeah. And similarly, the, the Codex Runicus, that's mostly also f official material that's written in runes there. Mm -hmm. You have, you know, uh, sort of like a little bit of regal history. You have uh, the Scanian law, as far as I remember, in there. So, so right. that's the stuff that would normally otherwise be written in, in Latin uh, letters. Yeah, I've I, I'm not actually read Codex Runicus. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I know it's a thing. I haven't, uh, I haven't read it. You just gave me a chance to nerd out here. No, no, I do. I love just sitting here listening to like two people who know what to talk about just nerd out about stuff. I just sit, I just sit smiling for anybody watching. I just have this big grin on my face. I'm like, oh, this is so cool. I don't know how often um, you guys get to just like scholars get to from different fields just sit down and get to just almost throw ideas about or or just spitball and just talk about whatever they want i guess not often enough man <laughs> uh, well, well every day in our house because i because i'm married to another academic so 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 we know that the the alphabet's called the fudark now is that because it was written down the first letters were they written down in order yeah so well the fudark, as far as i know is a modern uh, is a modern label um oh, okay but it, but it's called that because of the sounds of the first six letters okay how do we so how do we know that they're the first six letters is that a stupid question uh no it's not a stupid question we only we know the order of the let we know the order of the letters because we've got things like you, you know we mentioned the vadstein of bracteate and the, and the shuriver stone so we've got we've got inscriptions from fairly early on that have the whole alphabet written on them, and, and, and the order is fairly. There are kind of there are a few places where you get characters kind of swapped around, but but the order is fairly stable. Okay. Um, yeah. So do and you it, think uh, they it's were... also replicated later on in the runic poems, um, which are made with medieval runes, but nonetheless they sort of replicate the same order. And this has, of course, also led to a bunch of theories about how it's it's magical and and uh, it has something to do with the stars. And I don't know what. But there's a lot yeah. of interesting theories out there about that. Uh, <laughs> yes, there are. Yeah, there are all sorts of. Um, I mean, I think some of them came from academics. Some of them came from from occultists. But um, I mean, it was it was something that was really a preoccupation for scholars of Germanic philology and and runology in the early 20th century. And you know there were various there have been various attempts that kind of sort of straddle the line between the between the scholarly and the and the and the kind of the occult mm -hmm. to try and explain this. Um, none of which really, I think, really worked very well. 
Um, but, but you know, a lot of them were, were to do with the idea that the room names kind of encode sort of key ideas in early Germanic culture. Um, and you know, I'm mean, think as as a historical linguist. Sorry, I'm kind of uh, I'm getting kind of a bit uh, a bit abstract here. But um, one of the things that that kind of I worry about or try to kind of think about and problematize in my research is is the kind of the the fact that that the discipline of historical linguistics has its roots or its roots are kind of bound up with 19th century nationalism and you know th there's this idea of sort of searching for national origins and you know lots of academics in the 19th and early 20th centuries were kind of latching onto runes as you know this is our sort of indigenous writing system that that shows that our our forebears our ancestors were um, as kind of culturally sophisticated and evolved as as the Greeks and the Romans, and you know, of course, into the later nineteenth century, that that increasingly gets bound up with ideas of kind of um, you know, proto-fascism and with and with um, with racist ideology. Mm -hmm. um, but and the, and because they because those scholars knew that the runes had names, they assumed ah, these must be the kind. This must be the runes must sort of encode the the kind of the philosophy or the kind of cultural um you know, key cultural ideas of of the ancient peoples rather than being just a sort of a mnemonic device you know, a bit like sort of a is for apple b is for ball and that kind of thing yeah um but that 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 kind of that 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 way of trying to explain the order really fell out of fashion certainly after the second world war because of the because of its associations with with national socialism and and with racism uh, I think the most recent attempt to try and explain this was uh, by um, uh, Theo Fenemann, who's sort of proposed that there, maybe there's a direct connection between the origin of the runes and the Phoenician alphabet, um, because the Semitic alphabets also have letter names that are words, like like Alep, the first letter of the Phoenician alphabet, um, is is based on uh, a, a word for ox. Mm -hmm. And the name of the first rune is... Uh, is uh, fear in Old Norse, fear in Old English, which means which means sort of cattle or wealth, and so you know, he, he he proposed that maybe there's a maybe there's a link, a sort of more direct link between those two. I don't think that idea works, um, but it's the only kind of relatively recent sort of serious attempt to explain the uh, explain the order. Um, mm -hmm. There was. Um, Am I allowed to say rude things on the? On yeah, the absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Just taking. Um, so there, there was a, I think, a not terribly. I think he was kind of joking. A suggestion by Anatoly Lieberman. Uh, sometime <laughs> in the early two thousands, um, because the the beginning of the the beginning of the alphabet is foof. So foof. You, you know, <laughs> Matthias knows where I'm going with this. Um, there were there were lots of um, there. In in the Bergen material, there are lots of kind of partial futarks, or and, and often they will just write the first three letters futh, and is this an abbreviated? This might be an abbreviated futark, or um, futh um, in Old Norse means cunt. Um, so is this is this kind of a rude word? And um, oh, I wish it was. I hope it is. I am pretty sure that it, it probably is. A lot of them. <laughs> um, that would and, be that would be brilliant. <laughs> and then the fourth, and then the fourth, fifth, and sixth letters are. Ark, so ark, or um, uh, or possibly ars. So um, I mean, that system. would be the that would be the greatest trolling of all time. <laughs> that that would be brilliant. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, again, I, I think it's probably not true. Um, 
Oh, don't, don't take, don't give me and take it away. That's not fair. <laughs> no, that's uh, I, I, I doubt that that is true, but it's, uh, it's definitely quite, it's definitely funny. Um, so when it comes to the each each rune having a meaning, how accurate are the ones that we have? So the, the, the lists of rune names that we have, um, the the earliest of well, the earliest list of names is from a late eighth century manuscript. And the problem is that all of these all of these name lists are are recorded in manuscripts, so they're written down by scribes, mainly in the you know mainly in the sort of ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth centuries. Mm-hmm. And um, there's there's quite a bit of variation in the actual form of the names. So we don't know whether those are they're part. We don't know whether they're part of a medieval um, tradition, part of a sort of medieval, early medieval interest in alphabets. Because where these things crop up in, in where the, where the name lists crop up in uh, in manuscripts, it's to a large extent alongside um, treatises on on alphabets or on secret writing or on codes. So it's part of this sort of kind of scholarly game playing with alphabets and with writing that medieval scribes enjoy. So we don't know whether this is just a medieval tradition or whether it's or whether it's kind of a continuation of something older. And there are, you know, there is a set of English rune names and there is a set of Scandinavian rune names. And there are a lot of similarities between them, but also quite a lot of differences. Um, so I mentioned, uh, you know, Old English fer and Norse fer for the first rune. Those mean the same thing. They're etymologically the same. Um, but then you've got things like uh, the cook rune, the sixth rune. The old English name for it is chain, which means a which means a torch. Um, and the uh, the old Norse name is is uh, kung, which um, it can either mean slag in the sense of like the slag that's left over from metalworking. Um, oh, we're in a different route again. Yeah, not that slag. <laughs> um, that's that's a very British term, I think. Though. So. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I'm not sure where that one come, whether that one uh, that one's probably etymologi- etymologically related because it's the idea of kind of you know it's it's sort of misogynist mm-hmm. ideas that sounds about, about right yeah. about you know, sexually active women being dirty and that kind of that, yeah. that sort of idea. Um, but the other meaning for it is ulcer. Yeah. Um, okay. Or or sort of like a boil, um, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, the other one, right? Uh, the oo room is. Aurochs in, that's, that's, in, yeah. in Old English and and Drizzle in 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 the Nordic languages. Yes, that's right. Yeah. As far as I remember, the uh, uh, well, we have very little to go by in terms of uh, really understanding the language in which the earliest rune list is written down, the Abgadarium Nordmanicum. But as far as I remember, we tend to say that it's a mix of of some some old nordic and some saxon and a bit of high german in there as well uh nordmanicum um yes i think so yeah it's a it's a bit of a mixture because you know probably partly because it's getting you know this is a treatise that's getting passed around um it's you know getting passed around central europe it's being copied and recopied by scribes who speak different dialects Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, if you're if you're a speaker of a high German dialect and you see something that was written down by somebody in Saxony, then you maybe just kind of you sort of adapt the spelling, or sometimes you adapt the spelling and sometimes you don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes you just copy down what's in front of you, um, and so so you get this sort of slightly artificial 
mixing of uh, mixing of dialects in in a, that happens quite a lot in um, in early medieval manuscripts and also in Germany there were lots of there were lots of English scribes uh, at you know uh, English monks at continental university uh, universities um, continental monasteries sorry yeah. um, um, and also English manuscripts at continental monasteries being copied by people who didn't speak old English. Um, yeah. And so this is really obvious when we look at uh, the so-called Old English runes, right? If there are so many manuscripts that uh, that 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 feature them in different ways, that have, that have been copying them in Bavaria, in Austria, in, uh, in along the Rhineland, and, and so on, right? And you see so many. Uh, what older philologists would call bastardizations, right, of, of, of words, um, which you, know, you could also call them local interpretations or, or whatever. And um, I think it's a, it's a really interesting subject to, to, to discuss, uh, sort of like all of these manuscripts that have these English, supposedly English runes in them. I'm saying supposedly because I would like to hear your thoughts on that. Like, could we be talking about a sort of a more of a continental runic script here? Um, well, a couple of things on that. I mean, one, there, you know, there are runic inscriptions on the continent using older runes. There's a kind of fluorescence of those mainly in the sixth century. You know, the so-called South Germanic inscriptions, there's a concentration of material in what's now sort of Baden-Württemberg and, and Bavaria. Mm -hmm. So sort of southwestern southwestern Germany, but also with you know, a scattering of, of of there are finds elsewhere as well. There's um, quite a few finds um, using older runes from that period um, in what's now eastern France, so in the, in the areas mm -hmm. around the, the modern French German border. Mm -hmm. um, so there is a, you know there is a continental practice of using using older runes. Meanwhile. In uh, in England and to an extent in in Frisia, so on the uh, you know uh, around in the sort of North Sea zone, if you like, you get again this sort of this sort of experimenting with the writing system, adding some extra runes to fill in kind of gaps in the system, or to reflect kind of local sound changes, and then in the seventh century in England, there's a further expansion of the writing system to get you know, what we call the Anglo-Saxon or Old English futhork. So it's a, you know, it's an expanded form of runic writing, which is, you know, and, and it seems to be fairly regulated by, by religious communities. Um, mm -hmm. So it's so it gets fairly standardised in England. That's used for, that's used for um, writing inscriptions. Um, but then when we get manuscripts that start to that start to record, you know, here is how runic writing works. Most of those manuscripts are produced outside the areas where people are using runes epigraphically. Although I don't mm -hmm. think it's not necessarily that the two things are completely separate, but there is a. Well, we you know, don't have any evidence for people using them epigraphically. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so that 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 and it's the manuscript, you know, it's the manuscript practice, the manuscript interest in you know, runes alongside other other kind of different alphabets. Mm -hmm. um, that gets passed back to the that gets sort of fed back to the continent and then kind of uh, adapted there and then you get uh, you know you get these sort of magical alphabets or sometimes they, you know they're sometimes referred to as gothic alphabets meaning not the gothic alphabet yeah. <laughs> but meaning meaning runes or something that's very like runes yeah um, so how esoteric was this uh, uh, recording because you know uh, when we are dealing with uh, what is his name uh, Hrabanus, 
he writes the, this big treatise on, on all the different la uh, alphabets that he can get his hands on, right? That has something to do with biblical material, right? It's the, the, the origin of this interest has to do with the idea of the Tower of Babel and, you know, mm -hmm. the dissemination of the tribes and all the different languages and all that stuff, right? And, you know, there's also an example of, uh, this is a really obscure manuscript from Italy where you do find sort of, it looks like, I think it's, what is it, the 14th century or something like that, uh, manuscript that, that does have some quote-unquote runes in them. Um, they're called that, as far as I remember. And it's right. a bunch of, of weird uh, weird symbols that have very little to do with runes. Some of them, you could sort of like say, yeah, that could look like a rune. And actually, it also looks like the person who wrote this down had some names for runes. And even some later medieval Icelandic runes or, or Norwegian runes, um, because they're sort of like, again, this quote unquote bastardized versions of their names in there. And this all looks, uh, and I think that is attributed in that manuscript. The person who writes this says, uh, this is the hermetic tradition. So, right. so that's, that's directly related to ideas of the occult, right? And yeah. So what, what do you think about this? Uh, like, uh, how, how occult, so to speak, was the uh, practice of writing down runic systems and all that stuff back in the medieval period in general? Uh, I mean, I think in the early Middle, in the early Middle Ages, not, not particularly. Um, I mean, I think there's, there's an idea of um, you know, writing that will stand out because it looks different. And there's an idea of um, writing as sort of something that requires a bit more knowledge. Um, in southern Italy, you know, um, at um, Gargano, in, 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 right down in, in the south of Italy, there's a there's a shrine to St. Michael. And you know, it was common practice for pilgrims going there to kind of scratch their names onto the wall at the shrine. And so you've got walls at this place that are absolutely covered in graffiti. And there were some there were English there were some English pilgrims there whose names are written in runes. And because they're written using a different alphabet, they stand out amongst mm. all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. um that's that kind of idea of, of just something contrasting or something different is part of it but the, but yeah there's there's a kind of i think there's a kind of gradation of that into the idea of different alphabets as sort of secret codes or as something that only clever people know and and the idea that something something obscure can be used for sort of more esoteric purposes mm -hmm. um I mean, the first the first witchcraft uh, case in Iceland uh, was over a uh, so-called runic writing system of some kind. It was a, a man who was um, accused of uh, having made a boy ill. And when they then uh, searched his house, uh, part of the supporting evidence for him being a witch was mm -hmm. that he had these uh, uh, so-called runic writings on on on, uh, on parchment, pages of parchment in his in his house, which you know, in, in his, as just the case is incredibly fascinating too, right? Um, so so it tells us a lot about how how it has come to be seen as something very occult by that time when in, in so, the 1600s. This is the 1600s, yeah, yeah. So I think when you get into the early modern period, I think you know, with Renaissance ideas of you know of growing interest in sort of esotericism and magic i think that's where you really start to see the idea that there is something kind of intrinsically magical about about kind of obscure different alphabets and you know people like tratemius um kind of invented extra alphabets and kind of do and then you get start to get into things like kind of pseudo language or you know for, mm -hmm. for magical purposes is it safe to say that 
that originally it was just a writing source. Yeah, not, probably. Probably not. Because <laughs> not, not, not something fancy. <laughs> so many, yeah, I mean, so many people say that it was used for magic, and that's something that I think is a big, probably misconception that that has all originally had some sort of magic meaning to it. Well, I mean, I think part of the problem is you know the idea of what what actually is magic, and I think you know mm-hmm. the reason we start to see this sort of thing in in the early modern period we've got there is a there is an idea that there's a there's a boundary between mundane things and kind of magical esoteric things um and in in earlier periods that that boundary is either not there at all or it's more blurred or it's just drawn in different places or in different ways that that aren't obvious to us now so you know if somebody's writing their name on something are they writing their name because they think that's going to have some sort of supernatural effect or are they writing this just to show this belongs to me or is it both? Yeah, yeah. I get it. So, so something that they consider magic in the 1600s might not be considered magic during uh, the Viking Age, I guess. Yeah. It's, um, you, it's just perspective almost. I mean, I think, you know, you can see kind of the same thing with kind of Christian practice. When is, you know, if you're writing down, I don't know, um, you're writing down, say, Ave Maria. Is that is that magic? Um, are you just kind of indicating that you're a Christian, or you know, um, I don't know. I'm writing this on my piece of wood because I'm about to go on a sea voyage and it's dangerous, and I'm just saying my prayers before I go. Or is it supposed to have some sort of other, you know? And also, is is prayer not magic? And you know, well, we have that snowball rolling um, as well, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you know, I, I mean, an interesting kind of contribution to this topic, and, and I think it's probably one of the very few people who sort of straddles both the academic and the and the occult spheres is um Stephen Flowers or Edward Thorson. He wrote an article where he where he kind of proposed a sort of defi- a working definition of magic as operative communication, I think is, is the term he used. In other words, you know, if you're doing some piece of commun if you're you're doing some communicative act that is supposed to invoke some sort of external supernatural force or power or being to have an effect on the material world then that's mm-hmm. magic so that would cover for example things like intercessory prayer i don't know how but it also covers wearing your favorite socks at a soccer match right if you believe that that's going to have some real effect on the outcome yeah Daniel um, does, does believe that <laughs> oh no i don't, yeah. don't I mean, you? Like, why are you gonna do me like that <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> and again, you know, Flowers is coming that that from his own background in modern sort of mm-hmm. occultism. Um mm-hmm. and and you know, how how applicable is that to say the third or fourth centuries in what's now northern Germany or Denmark, say? Um, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well that I think that's a, a brilliant way to I never really thought of it like that. I guess that you know, they just saw things differently to how we saw things and what's magic to somebody a thousand years ago is is completely different to what we we may consider magic now because obviously we know a lot more now whereas back then it was maybe just an ordinary thing that you did because you didn't understand why certain things happened well i don't know that it's necessarily that we know more we we maybe look at things differently um yeah i mean 
yeah, you know, I'm I'm very wary of this idea that, of course, now we now we do science and we and we and we're all mm-hmm. we're much cleverer and we don't. You know, um, and we're still very much, you know, entrenched in our emotional uh, repertoire when it comes to right. understanding the world, right? Yeah, uh, um, and you know, we all believe in gravity. How many people actually understand the physics of gravity? Mm-hmm. Other right. than yeah. other than yeah. kind of theoretical physicists, or especially theoretical physicists, maybe. Yeah, um, I think I was I, I was meaning more in the sense that we now would understand why the crops would fail or why a thunderstorm would happen, which, you know, to somebody that that doesn't kind of have that general understanding would be a huge deal. And you would maybe need a magical response. Whereas today we kind of know that maybe the soil was bad. It Mm. was too acidic, too alkaline, or or for whatever reason, something's not gone, gone right. Yeah. Or even then, I mean, you know, we're living in a period where conspiracy theories are very popular. You know, mm-hmm. why did the soil fail because of the, I don't know, because yeah, of the government, uh, 12 or black helicopters or, yeah, an, or Jewish space lasers or, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. you know people, people believe this stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely, they do. They do. I've, so I want to just throw a few questions at you. Just, <laughs> I think just the general misconceptions that I, I pick up on or I've seen or stuff that I, th- I personally think needs clearing up on runes um the first one is back to front and upside down runes just in the fact that so many people i see say that if you put a rune upside down or reversed it has the negative it has the opposite meaning and it's negative and it's such a bad thing um and that one really annoys me because obviously didn't people write bushrafford on which is the best word i'm ever going to say on this podcast there aren't many inscriptions that are written in kind of strict Bustrophodon where you kind of go left to right one line and then right to left the other line. But people do, people will change direction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and you will get individual characters that are written back to front or written upside down or um, sometimes written kind of on their side. Um, and it's part, you know, especially when we're talking about older runes, we're talking about, a, we're talking about a culture where there's no, you know, there's no, we don't, that doesn't have the kind of the strict kind of normative formal education that we have. You know, we're so used to in, you know, in the modern world, having standardized spellings of words, you know, you write a word in a specific way. And if you don't do it that way, then it's wrong. Um, and that's not the case in, even in the early middle ages, when you know, to a large extent, people spell the way they speak um, up to a point. Um, but you know, varying the spelling of a word isn't a problem. Um, and with runic inscriptions, yeah, changing changing the directions of characters is not, or, or writing in different directions is not at all uncommon. You have to consider that the mind that's organizing these letters thinks more, perhaps, in terms of, you know, broad pictures, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of you know organizing them on a page like we're, we're we're accustomed to. I mean, the first example of runes organized in that way seems to be Harold Bluetooth's um stone in yelling in denmark right where he he writes that he christianized all the danes and and all that stuff he's almost signaling hey here's the book guys um because he's organizing it as if if it were in an illuminated medieval manuscript and we don't really see that before then um i mean again some of the english inscriptions that are right, are, are, that, are, are doing yeah. the same sort of thing yeah um, and are you know which is might like... might be where he's getting it from by the way uh, quite possi- possibly, um, yeah. yes, because this is we're sort of mid tenth century, aren't we? 
yeah yeah so um uh yeah by this point you know the danes are um yeah in control of part of, of substantial parts of of britain um english you know, english moneyers for example are being kind of mm-hmm. taken to scandinavia so yeah the, the writing practices of, of the english are, are, are part of the part mm-hmm. of the influence on that yeah right um, yeah yeah there was something else I was going to say about uh, about all of this. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, this idea of re- reversed runes having reversed meanings or something like that, that's part of modern runic magical practice, which is also, you know, this is people using runes. I mean, it, it's modern, but I mean, you know, if that's how people are using these things, that's now part of, part of how they're used, if you see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the next one that I want to ask, is do do the meanings were they ever used almost I guess like in a hieroglyphic style? You know, we said that each rune would have a meaning. So say yeah. for for cattle, do you ever see that that rune represents that word? Uh, a bit, not actually very often. With older runes, there's only there's only a couple of examples where um, where a rune is used to stand in for the word that is its name. Um, and even those, I think, are, are questionable. Um, there's an inscription that says, um, I forget the name, it's something like Harry Wolfus. Um, Harry Wolfus, um, Gaff Year, which is taken to mean, uh, that this guy gave a year, um, Yara or Yera is the, is the name of that rune, meaning that he sort of provided a good harvest or something like that. But you can see how, for that interpretation to work, you've already got to go sort of several steps of inference beyond what's actually written down. So I, I think it's, you know, I think even that is problematic. The one, the one that I know that is that is pretty solid is is one of these um, ones where um, it says uh, "ritu r." So I write r, meaning runes. Um, but of course, runes is not the name of the r rune. So it's you know, it looks like it's an, a single rune used to mean a word that starts with that sound but not as far as we know or at least not the name that's in the medieval lists one place where you do get runes uh used as sort of a uh, sort of shorthand is in is again in um in some manuscripts particularly english manuscripts where some runes are used as sort of abbreviations so like um the, the name of the M rune is man in old English, which means a, you know, a man or a person, um, because that's a word that you, if you're a scribe, you're having to write that down lots. Sometimes people will just write mm, mm-hmm. or um, you know, uh, the other one is is D for, for day, meaning meaning a day. You get people writing things like sunnand uh, for, for sunnanday, so Sunday. I, like, I bet that makes your job so hard. Or people, you know, people who, who come along and try to figure these out. Well, uh, I think you know it, it's a known practice. So you know, once you get used to the way scribes do things, mm-hmm. uh, it's it, it's not so bad. Yeah, it, I feel like it's a relatively common practice in, uh, in from the 1100s and and onwards. Um, but there's also another. Uh, we have, of course, uh, Sigurd Rivermal, uh, the the um, Old Norse Eddic poem uh, that. Uh, 
that mentions uh, runes that you write on certain things. You right. write a certain rune on a prow of a ship. I think you, you write nerd on on your nail uh, or, or something like that. I can't remember exactly. And um, and the N rune also uh, often shows up as as uh, as a like the word itself as as some kind of special word. Um, in various contexts, so there's 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 a little bit here and there, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, but it but it's definitely not sort of a common uh, idea that's attached to each and every yeah. room, right? Yeah, and and when we're thinking about Norse literature, of course, we're thinking about medieval literature that purports to say, you know, this is what the pagans used to do in the olden days, exactly. Um, <laughs> um, and I think you know, and that's one of the things that has kind of led to a lot of the modern confusion about this um i don't know do you want i mean i can i can go off on on nazis and uh some some really weird nasty stuff at this point if you like if we put a pin in that i've got two more that i just want to clear up three more actually um so double runes is one that i see people preaching about in one way or the other usually the kind of the, the whole narrative is that they didn't use double runes don't use double runes never use that's the one that i always see um but i know that there are some examples of double runes being used um yeah so yeah that's that's what i wanted to clear kind of clear up so yeah uh, so um in uh, with with all the runes and in um in Viking Age practice, double runes are rare, but you do get them. Um, mm-hmm. And again, remember this is you know these are this is a this is a writing practice. This is a, a, a literate culture that doesn't have strict rules about spelling. It has conventions, it has norms, but the idea that we have nowadays about certain spellings being correct or incorrect doesn't really apply. One place um, again in England, where most of the runic inscriptions that we have are being produced by people who are also literate in Latin uh, and in the Roman alphabet, double runes are quite common. Um, if you would write it, if you would write a double letter when you write it in in the Roman alphabet, you usually then it's it's very common to use a double rune as well. But yeah, outside of outside of that English tradition, um, they're less they're not so common, but but you do get them. I think that's one thing people are so reluctant to to let go of the idea that we that Yes, we have very strict rules now, but back then you're talking about people, you know, who are geographically so far apart that they'll never talk to each other. So, that, you know, things can go off in little tangents and vary in different places. And I guess people get taught different ways and remember things differently and maybe even speak differently. Yeah, I think I mean, part of the... Uh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I mean, I mean, you know, regional variation in speech in in the early middle ages or in the late antique period is going to be just as you know is, is going to be just like it is now well not just like it is now but you know people will speak differently in different places mm-hmm. in different areas and the other thing is you know even within you know even within the kind of literate educated you know formally regulated scribal culture spelling variation is is still completely is, is just completely normal mm-hmm. it's perfectly acceptable to write the same word three different ways in the same in the same couple of lines for, for many describes that's that's just completely normal practice which is really annoying when you try to read it <laughs> that, that, yeah that that's bonkers i mean i would understand it in like 
different places having different spellings, but just pick one for the if you're writing one that sentence, thing, just pick one way of spelling it. That would do my OCD. In. <laughs> so I just wanted to add, I think this popular idea that oh you can't do double runes, uh that probably comes from somebody having picked up on how runes are are carved in Viking Viking Age and medieval Scandinavia, where you see a lot of I mean they're economizing with, with yeah. space basically. So they're contracting all over the place. And that in itself is is sort of like you know the the other side of 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 really annoying poor writing skills in a sense, <laughs> right? <laughs> because you know you don't know if it's an ND or an uh, right. or or what whatever it is uh, or just a T. <laughs> I mean, I bet sometimes you just run out of space as well. Oh, it's yeah. like, it's like you just, not like you could just rub it out and start again. You just kind of got to finish and. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do, well, do you ever it, see where the writing gets really starts really big and really small towards the yes. end? Yeah, all, all the time it's really common. Because that's um, what I used to do at school. Like, <laughs> I mean, even uh, you know, even very carefully planned inscriptions. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the Frank's casket. You know, it's yeah. a very uh, yeah. elaborately carved box, and it's obviously mm-hmm. been you know, like the the it's it's got very dense kind of pictorial imagery and then inscriptions around the outside the whole thing must have been very carefully planned and produced by very highly skilled craftspeople but you still get this thing of where the inscriptions you know the starting inscription all the letters are nicely spaced out and very even and very neat and then and then you get towards the end of the line and the, and the, and the carver is starting to run out of space so the characters get sort of more and more <laughs> cramped in together um, I mean, we've all been there anybody who's <laughs> trying to write anything in a space has been there because it's a difficult <laughs> task to do to just look at and go right to write this big, yeah, and then be like, it's, oh, it's like starting with a giant brass band and then ending up with a kazoo. <laughs> that's that's hilarious, but yeah, it, well, it's yeah, it's um, a very real problem. Yeah, well, I have that problem with like lectures and conference papers and things. You know, you start here's my background. I don't know. Explain to you the story of you. I will tell you the story of how my grandfather passed down this knowledge to me on on his knee, and then and then you're twenty minutes wrapping it, and you've barely started on the actual substance <laughs> of what you're supposed to be talking about. Let me just get one more thing in here. Like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> so <laughs> the next one on my list is is bind runes, which is one that seems very popular today. This idea of Layering the runes up of you know different ones for mm-hmm. putting the meanings together or putting the letters together in, in like a I guess, like a long rune. Do we see examples of that at all? Is that a modern? Yeah. A modern um, so, well, I think I mean a couple of things. You know, um, in runology, when we talk about bind runes, we are talking about just letters joined together, so like ligatures, which is usually two or very occasionally three letters just kind of linked together, sharing a kind of sharing a stave sharing a vertical stroke yeah um and often that's about space sometimes it's not about space and we don't really know why why carvers are doing it maybe they're just doing it for because they think it looks cool or for or for some other reason but there's no there's there's no reason i as far as i'm aware there's no evidence that that's a a sort of there's anything magical about that practice but i think um where in modern magical practice where you get kind of binaries where people are kind of linking lots and lots of runes together to get a combination of their magical meanings i think that might be something that you get in um in kind of possibly in some later medieval uh or early modern practices where people are kind of combining a bunch of runes together to make a sort of shape mm-hmm. um 
Um, yeah, I mean, we have the, the uh, that, that's a late medieval, yeah. well, the earliest examples we have in uh, Icelandic books of magic, they, they start being written down by the, by the 1500s um, because of concerns of, of witchcraft, right? And, um, and that's where you see these, uh, you know, all these kinds of curious symbols. Most of it has something to do with um, just, just general medieval magic, right? Um, mm -hmm. but they're referred to in, in the Icelandic as runes, right? So, mm -hmm. so that, that has connotations there. I mean, one thing you do get in earlier on, there's a couple of examples of this from sort of the fifth, sixth centuries, um, is rune crosses. So you get, you'll get a cross, um, so like an X shape, mm -hmm. and then you'll write the twigs of, you'll write the twigs of a rune on one arm of the cross and then twigs of another rune on the next arm of the cross. Uh, and so you get this sort of, you know, you get this shape and it's, we don't really know what they say. If they say anything, we don't know what they're for. Maybe they had a magical meaning. Maybe they had some other meaning. We don't know. Oh, it's quite clever. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen one of them, or even there's there's well, not so, there's not many examples of that, but there are a few. But there's th th there are some where it's just where where it is actual actual runes kind of combined into a sort of cross shape, um, mm. and it's an it's an X shape, not a so it doesn't look like it's a kind of a kind of a Christian cross. Maybe it is. Um, th there's a there's a couple of those, and we don't really know what's going on with them. That's um, very cool. That's really cool. Um, next second to last one. Do we know how well the best way that the runes were taught and passed on throughout generations? Because obviously we're speaking about a long time period here. So things, I guess they seem to stay pretty consistent throughout hundreds of years. So they must be some way, I guess, of them passing them on from generation to generation and keeping it quite similar. Um, was it a case where you had one person who taught it or were they written down on little sticks and then then passed on? I don't know. Um, I mean, for the early periods, we really don't know. Um, I mean, you're right that there is there is quite there is consistency in in the order of the characters in how they're used. So, um, you know, people are you know people are teaching these things, people are learning them, but we don't know how they're doing that. Um, later on, again, when we look at the Bergen material, we've got some inscriptions that look like they are kind of people practicing their writing, mm -hmm. um, and people writing out the alphabet, or people writing out kind of combinations of characters so they will kind of write you know fa fe fi fo fu ka ke ki ko ku that kind of thing mm -hmm. so th th those seem to be writing exercises again that's in a that's in an environment where people are where lots of people are also literate in the roman alphabet mm -hmm. and so the idea of kind of for, you know formal education and learning to write by by that that sort of means is, is is common practice but yeah uh, earlier on we really we really don't know how people are learning them the fact that we know so little about this stuff i think lends itself perfectly to to magic being involved yeah. and people going down that route because it just it's mysterious so yeah. people it's easy to make make the attachments um do we ever this i don't know if this is going to happen but do you ever find like you have like a little branch off somewhere like geographically where maybe they got confused or didn't quite understand the rules or they just took a different direction maybe the, the teacher was a little bit shit and uh <laughs> it's just, i can just imagine that might happen somewhere um you do get yeah you, you get regional variations in 
you know, uh, in the way people write particular runes, you get kind of, you get certain um, regional practices like there's there's the staveless runes, um, which I've always given a very wide berth because they're they're kind of weird and terrifying. Um, but this is in um, in uh, Gotland, I think. In um, so you know, it's quite quite geographically restricted. There's a kind of uh, a really radically reduced form of runic writing where they just they just miss out the vertical strokes and basically just write the twigs. <laughs> Yeah, why do that? I've looked at them and been like, what? <laughs> yeah, they, they are. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> but you know, it's you know, it's and it's a fairly geographically restricted kind of variation on the tradition. Um, Never caught on. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> and, and some of the, yeah. Uh, I mean, some of the other variations may or may not be geographically defined, but again, because because the objects that have got them written, you know, unless they're written on kind of big rune stones. Objects mm-hmm. get passed around; they move around. We, you know, the place oh, where a thing turns up isn't necessarily where it was made. Uh, Even some some have tried to turn local dialects in Scandinavia based off of rune finds and all that stuff. And I'm not entirely sure that you can do that at that point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, well, I think in Scandinavia, at least, you know, Viking Age Scandinavia, you've got lots of stones that you can work from. And while yeah. you know a lot of them are not in the places they were originally put. They're not hundreds of miles away, mostly. That's true. Unless they're in a museum. Yeah, but they show very little variation in the language. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, those. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the the Viking Age stones. The other problem with them is that they're very formulaic. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, it's uh, and this is one of those places where spelling really stops mattering. Yeah. Because you, you know what the thing is supposed to say, so you don't need to worry too much about how you write it. So you know, you can write, you know, name. Um, Stein and raise the stone, um, mm. or you can just name or, or something like that. Um, that sounds like something I'd do. Just... <laughs> well, you know, and it's uh, and why not? Grunt. Again, same thing with you know, if you look at Roman epigraphy, I mean, uh, Roman, you know, Roman inscriptions are really hard to read because they are they're so formulaic that you get lots of really radical abbreviations. So you get like a person's name and then just a string of individual letters. And you have to know that, you know, that these, you know, each of these letters means, you know, like different levels of of the military unit that this person belonged to or something like that. Or I guess I guess they're they're not writing it thinking, you know, there's gonna be three guys sat on a podcast talking about it in <laughs> <laughs> 1200 years or whatever like yeah. it's they're, they're writing for there and then are they they're not thinking some poor guy's gonna have to look at this when he digs it up <laughs> um okay the last one before we move on to modern times and then we can we'll, we'll wrap up is is the blank rune which you guys <laughs> see get mentioned and spotted and I, I i feel i know the answer to this so i know it's going to lead us quite nicely into modern day yeah so where where does that come from and why why does that keep hanging around so the blank rune is an idea in modern it's in rune divination because you've got you know if you're doing divination with runes you've got a stone with within an individual rune written on and then one of them is a blank rune that does come from or at least i think it comes from um the kind of the sort of repudiation of the nazi use of runes um mm-hmm. so um can we move on to Guido List now? Yeah, yeah let's talk about that crazy bastard. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. So um, the th- the whole kind of thing with runes and Nazis, you know, a, a key figure in this in this sort of development is uh, Guido List. So List was a 
uh, he was an Austrian occultist, and in um, he'd been he'd been sort of on the fringes of the of the occult movement in the late nineteenth century. Um, he was linked with the Theosophists, but I don't think he was ever a member of the Theosophical Society. Um, and in 1902, he was having cataract surgery. He was uh, he had bandages over his eyes and he was effectively blind for some months. During this time, he says, uh, he, report, he later reported that he had a vision of uh, of Odin and, and the secret meaning of the runes. Um, this sounds a lot like Joseph Smith. It is. Yeah, it's it's the same kind of same kind of idea, really. Um, and and you know, it was revealed to him in this vision that um, that the um, that the Runatal, so a section of the Eddic poem Halvamal, was actually uh, a secret rune poem that revealed the the ancient the, the ancient Aryan meanings of the uh, of the runes. And um, so, this is a section of the poem Halvamal in which Odin um, is, is 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 narrating this poem, and he. Uh, and he it comes after the bit where he talks about um also the, the bit that we now call Runatal is the bit where Orthin tells, you know, I was hanging on the tree for nine days and nights, and um and you know, tells about his suffering, and then he says, and then there's a line that in that that says sort of, you know, and screaming, I took up the runes, whatever that means. Following on from that is a section of the poem where where Orthin kind of lists various different magic spells he knows. You know, I know a certain charm that uh, will make a girl fall in love with me. I know a charm that will um, that if I come across a person's grave, I can make that person stand up and talk to me. That kind of thing. That's the part where we concluded when we were reading this with Ed Gamester that this is where Odin is getting progressively drunker and drunker. <laughs> <laughs> we, so, yeah, we, we're we're actually carrying that on next week. Our yeah, so. <laughs> reading of Havamal. So we've got Ed and Shane Smith joining us, which will be chaotic beyond belief we've <laughs> right. had a we've had some serious episodes we we had we've obviously got you on today Martin, and then we had terry gunnell on last week so we've uh we've had some serious episodes so that one will be a little bit a little bit more light-hearted let's put I, it that way I, i'll i'll not spoil it don't don't let this spoil it um <laughs> so so list decided that this kind of list this kind of sequence of spells was actually the secret mystical meanings of the runes and so you know the first spell that he says is the meaning of the first rune and that kind of thing um and then uh, list wrote a book called Duskeheimnister Runen the, the the secret of the runes in which he kind of explains his his sort of mystical interpretation of runes and it's part of this sort of fantasy that he's got of the of you know the ancient Aryans who were of course the forebears of the of the modern uh, well mainly of the modern Germans um so it's kind of it's theosophical mystical race theory um with an extra sort of german nationalist spin on it and he wrote a whole a whole other series of um kind of occult books about the ancient aryans and their ancient wisdom uh, but but the the runes was the bit that got really picked up um it's also the short it, it's the shortest of his occult books which probably has something to do with it something to attach to this is is also that he uh, he claims that you can see runes in the like the bindwork uh, gabled houses, half gabled houses, or whatever you call them in English, you know, okay. sections, right? Yeah, they, I know. 
they they encode ancient secrets from from this Amanin priesthood that existed yes. in ancient times. And the same with heraldics, right? That the, yeah. the runes are you know secretly encoded in there as well. That's a way to suck up to the uh, the nobility of Germany and Austria at the time. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, and, and, and yeah, because uh, part of this part of this kind of ideology is 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 elitism, an mm-hmm. idea that yeah that uh, this was the ancient heritage of the ancient Aryan elite, mm-hmm. the ancient Aryan kind of priest king rulers. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, List famously um, ad- you know, adapted his own name. He was born Guido List, and he wrote, he published his works under the name Guido von List. Mm-hmm. The von kind of indicating, claim, you know, making the claim that he was a member of the aristocracy. But he also had some pretty politically pow- powerful friends. So. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, List himself wasn't particularly involved directly in politics, but he attracted. But a lot of the people he attracted to him, who were members of his own kind of occult circle were very influential um and some of them were directly involved with the nazi party later on too. later on yeah um list wasn't only he died in 1919 um yeah. but you know his yeah his followers kind of carried on the tradition um and that fed in, and, and where it really gets picked up by the nazis is by um um is by i've completely blanked on his name He's very, very famous, awful guy, terrible, terrible person. Um, what's his name? Uh, is it Weistor, Villigut? Villigut, yeah, Villigut, yes, Karl yeah. Maria Villigut. Um, there we go. Yes. Um, so Villigut was, you know, and he was sort of he was going his own way, you know, as a cultist might, you know, he sort of mm-hmm. picked up the idea of the runes in, in the tradition of List and, and was doing his own things. Of course, he too claimed that he was the reincarnation of an ancient Aryan warlord, and he was actually. Uh, he was institutionalized at one point and then uh, and then himmler um picked him up plucked him out of his uh, out of the asylum where he'd been and then kind of he was one of himmler's hangers on and was sort of and himmler wanted him to be basically mur- you know himmler had sort of uh, arthurian fantasies and you know, saw himself yeah. as a kind of kind of a latter day king arthur and 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 villigut was his merlin um and it was villigut who uh, designed the runic inscriptions on the death's head rings um, and and a lot of the Nazi iconography, um, and it's also from 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 that, those two and uh, uh, everything that happened with uh, Himmler's uh, nice little castle, what was it called Wevelsburg or something like that. Wevelsburg, yeah. Yeah, uh, um, that's where we get the so-called Black Sun um, symbol from. That people often say is is a runic uh, sort of like a runic symbol. Yeah, the, the Black Sun's got nothing to do with runes. Um, no, it's uh, it's possibly inspired by by kind of decorative motifs on on kind of late antique jewelry. Um, I've I've also heard it said. I I did a little yes a few years ago. I did a little bit for a for a documentary. Um, and one of the other one of the other academics on that on that documentary was um, had, had worked more directly with the, with the Black Sun and 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 kind of, and kind of Dug into you know the the academics around Himmler who uh, who had been working for him and they you know, they all thought Himmler was bonkers and and thought it was all a bit of a joke uh, and this was just a sort of this was just a geometric design that they came up with because they thought it looked nice mm-hmm. um, but that's got picked up by the, then that's got picked up by the neo Nazi movement mm-hmm. um, but I mean, if you get a chance to go to Wilsburg you should go there it's great they, they have a fantastic museum there um, mm-hmm. and it's really um, 
quite um, it's interesting and you know quite disturbing. Although the, the stuff I find most disturbing is not so much the kind of the is not so much the wacky you know ostentatious uh, sort of you know, SS cult stuff. It's the it's the everyday things. And one of the things they've got on display here is you know it's the um, you know it's the SS cutlery and the board games and the, you know and the way this the way this sort of political cult kind of infected every part of everyday life. And that's, I don't know, that to me is, is, is essential to the, to the evil of it, um, mm -hmm. is how it gets, you know, it's not just some, some wacky politicians and, you know, sort of army people, well, not really army people, but kind of quasi army people. It's in people's homes. It's in people's everyday lives. You can't get away from it. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it's, it's, creepy. It's, it's terrifying. And it's even more terrifying that some people still try and attach themselves to it today, which is, yeah. So this actually brings me to a question I would like to ask you. So uh, you mentioned Stephen Flowers earlier, and mm -hmm. he has written books where he's basically uh, propagating Guido's old uh, runic system. And I was wondering, what, what is what is your opinion of that? Why, um, I think, you know, if you're a scholar of this material, you also do occult things with it, so to speak. And it, I, personally, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I do it myself. But if you if you you know use the, those those systems that uh, that Guido List came up with, then then I'm I'll, I'll have to ask why. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean personally, I'm not really comfortable with that. I mean, I think what Flowers is trying to do there is he's saying, okay, here's the, you know here's the magical system. We don't have to take on board the the ideology and the politics that that were bound up with this. Um, but you know, here's how you can do it. Here's how you can do magical practice with this. I I think he lets list off the hook a bit there. Um, but you know, on the other hand, you know, flowers is linked to the troth and to heathens against hate and to you know sections of the heathen movement that are pushing back very hard against white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Um, so you know, I don't you know, I wouldn't want to implicate him in this mm. stuff. Um, okay. Yeah, no, I, I would say like you know if we look at uh, Guido's project back in the day his project was to uh, claim that uh, the Germans had a uh, birthright to Austria as opposed to the Polish and the Czechs and the Serbians and and all the other you know uh, peoples who, who lived in the the Austrian kingdom at the time and it was very it was a very racialized project and then he comes up with the runes and this Amman priesthood as part of that so to me that seems very tainted in in so many ways yeah i mean it's something that uh, it's something that most modern heathens don't have any trouble with let's talk about oh, we, we didn't actually get onto the Amman runes sorry we got sidetracked <laughs> onto other stuff um one of the things that's curious about um about list's runes is um i mentioned that you know he says each of the each of the verses of this, you know, of this of the uh, this this list of spells is linked to one rune. There are eighteen verses in that um, in in that bit of the poem. Mm -hmm. Eighteen spells. List is working on what was then the normal assumption that the Viking runes were the oldest runes. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's only sixteen of them, so he needed to tack a couple of extra ones on the end. Um, one of which was the swastika. Mm. So the 18th rune is the swastika, and that, according to uh, according to List, was this kind of you know, encoded the you know the deepest, highest secret of the ancient Aryans. Um, and I think that what's happened there 
is that 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 idea of a sort of you know a secret kind of bonus rune has got into modern runic divination practice but because of the, because the swastika is obviously associated with nazis people didn't want to kind of continue that so they've replaced it with a blank i'm not 100 percent sure I, I i haven't actually managed to uh find much about the early development of of, of kind of runic divination in the 1950s mm. um but i think that's where the blank rune comes from mm. um, it would make sense as, as people would want to drop it out of there they wouldn't want it like yeah <laughs> and you know and you know and in you know the idea in divination is that is that the, is that the blank rune if if i understand it correctly as a non-practitioner the, the blank rune is sort of that's Odin's rune and uh, and it kind of represents kind of chaos or mystery or you know the deepest secrets yeah that would make well, that would make sense perfect let's let's wrap this one up because Mateus, we've got to re- uh, record the telling of the saga of the Volsungs after this. So yes, and yeah, we have also taken a lot of your time already, Martin. Thank <laughs> we you so have much. indeed. Yes, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for spending so long with us. Uh, uh, thanks, thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks very much. No, thank you. Like I say, it's one that I've been really looking forward to, and I'm sure it will get a a lot of listens because runes seem to be very it's very popular amongst everyone. It splits opinions, so hopefully we can just clear some things up. <laughs> That's the plan. <laughs> Um, is there anything you're you're working on at the minute? Are you working on any books or? Um, yeah, I mean, mainly. Well, uh, the, the book project I'm working on at the moment is on um, is on kind of the earliest stages of Old English, and you know, we have very very few runic inscriptions in England from the sort of the from the current period of the you know, fifth and sixth centuries. Um, what can we actually learn about the language? from uh, from those and, and it, it's linked to all sorts of methodological problems in historical linguistics about what we assume we know about language that we don't actually know um and you know how on earth do you reconstruct a language when you've got very very little data for what for what that language is actually really mm-hmm. like um, oh, that's that's yeah. fascinating that's really interesting absolutely perfect um Mateus, do you want to let people know where they can find you you can always find me on Instagram if you want to follow my personal everyday whatever images of beautiful mountains and me squatting in a in an Adidas tracksuit. Um, <laughs> <laughs> also, sometimes check out the Nordic Mythology Channel dot com for blog posts. Um, you can still read my most recent rant on why you should stop saying Norse. And um, yeah, um, otherwise go from there. <laughs> Mine, I don't know whether you use any social medias or if you want to. Uh, I, I don't really use social media much professionally. Um, I, I'm That's at fine. Valdemort on Twitter. Um, there you go. Uh, but I don't. But I'm, I'm not very active on Twitter. So um, you, <laughs> why is it true? If, if you're yeah, interested absolutely. in the things that I've liked occasionally, then then you can see that. There you go. Okay. <laughs> If you enjoy the show, please take a minute to fight, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. Helps people find the show, helps us jump up the ratings. Obviously, you can find us at Nordic Mythology Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, uh, the website, nordicmythologypodcast.com. Uh, the same on Patreon, where you get to join us for bonus episodes that we do. Um, so we have our watch-along that we're going to do start doing bi-weekly, and then today we're doing our story time episodes, which are going to be every other week as well and um, where we're going to take one of the sagas and me and Mateus are going to well Mateus is going to read it 
and we are going to uh, just he's going to read out, and I'm going to make some sort of jokes as we go through it. So we, yeah, we know we're going to go through the popular sagas over the next uh, many many months. Um, you know, be fun time. So they're Patreon exclusive ones. So pop over to Northern Mythology Podcast on Patreon, and you can sort of check out the different tiers. We just recently dropped the prices on there as well to make it a little bit more accessible. Um, yeah, mine. Thank you very much. It was wonderful. Thank you, thank you for um, spending the time with us.